File 5 of Farthest North, Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sharon Riskadal. Farthest North by Friedhof Nansen, Volume 1. Chapter 3 The Start. So travel I north to the gloomy abode that the sun never shines on. There is no day. It was midsummer day a dull, gloomy day, and with it came the inevitable leave-taking. The door closed behind me. For the last time I left my home, and went alone down the garden to the beach where the Fram's little petroleum launch pitilessly awaited me. Behind me lay all I held dear in life. And what before me? How many years would pass ere I should see it all again? What would I not have given at that moment to be able to turn back? But up at the window little Leave was sitting, clapping her hands. Happy child, little do you know what life is, how strangely mingled and how full of change. Like an arrow, the little boat sped over Lysaker Bay, bearing me on the first stage of a journey on which life itself, if not more, was staked. At last everything was in readiness. The hour had arrived, towards which the persevering labor of years had been incessantly bent, and with it the feeling that everything being provided and completed, responsibility might be thrown aside, and the weary brain at last find rest. The Fram lies yonder at Pepperviken, impatiently panting and waiting for the signal, when the launch comes puffing past Dina and runs alongside. The deck is closely packed with people come to bid a last farewell, and now all must leave the ship. Then the Fram weighs anchor, and heavily laden and moving slowly, makes the tour of the little creek. The quays are black with crowds of people waving their hats and handkerchiefs, but silently and quietly the Fram heads toward the fjord, steers slowly past Bigda and Dina out on her unknown path while little nimble craft, steamers, and pleasure-boats swarm around her. Peaceful and snug lay the villas along the shore behind their veils of foliage, just as they ever seemed of old. Ah, fair is the woodland slope, and never did it look fairer. Long, long will it be before we shall plough these well-known waters again. And now a last farewell to home. Yonder it lies on the point, the fjord sparkling in front, pine and fir woods around, a little smiling meadowland, and long wood-clad ridges behind. Through the glass one could descry a summer-clad figure by the bench under the fir-tree. It was the darkest hour of the whole journey. And now, out into the fjord, it was rainy weather, and a feeling of melancholy seemed to brood over the familiar landscape with all its memories. It was not until noon the next day, June 25th, that the Fram glided into the bay by Rakvik, Archer's shipyard near Larvik, where her cradle stood and where many a golden dream had been dreamt of her victorious career. Here we were to take the two longboats on board and have them set up on their davits, and there were several other things to be shipped. It took the whole day and a good part of the next before all was completed. About three o'clock on the 26th, we bade farewell to Rakvik and made a bend into Larvik Bay in order to stand out to sea by Fredericksvarn. 
Archer himself had to take the wheel and steer his child this last bit before leaving the ship. And then came the farewell handshake, but few words were spoken, and they got into the boat, he, my brothers, and a friend, while the Fram glided ahead with her heavy motion, and the bonds that united us were severed. It was sad and strange to see this last relic of home in that little skiff on the wide blue surface, Anker's cutter behind, and Larvik further in the distance. I almost think a tear glittered on that fine old face as he stood erect in the boat and shouted a farewell to us and to the Fram. Do you think he does not love the vessel? That he believes in her I know well. So we gave him the first salute from the Fram's guns, a worthier inauguration they could not well have had. Full speed ahead, and in the calm bright summer weather, while the setting sun shed his beams over the land, the Fram stood out towards the blue sea to get its first roll in the long heaving swell. They stood up in the boat and watched us for long. We bore along the coast in good weather, past Christiansand. The next evening, June 27th, we were off the Nase. I sat up and chatted with Scott Hansen till late in the night. He acted as captain on the trip from Christiania to Trondheim, where Sverdrup was to join, after having accompanied his family to Steenkiar. As we sat there in the chart-house and let the hours slip by while we pushed on in the ever-increasing swell, all at once a sea-burst opened the door and poured in. We rushed out on deck. The ship rolled like a log, the seas broke in over the rails on both sides, and one by one up came all the crew. I feared most lest the slender davits which supported the longboats should give way, and the boats themselves should go overboard, perhaps carrying away with them a lot of the rigging. Then twenty-five empty paraffin casks, which were lashed on deck, broke loose, washed backwards and forwards, and gradually filled with water, so that the outlook was not altogether agreeable. But it was worst of all when the piles of reserved timber, spars, and planks began the same dance and threatened to break the props under the boats. It was an anxious hour. Seasick, I stood on the bridge, occupying myself in alternately making libations to Neptune and trembling for the safety of the boats and the men who were trying to make snug what they could forward on deck. I often saw only a hotchpotch of sea, drifting planks, arms, legs, and empty barrels. Now a green sea poured over us and knocked a man off his legs so that the water deluged him. Now I saw the lads jumping over hurtling spars and barrels so as not to get their feet crushed between them. There was not a dry thread on them. Ewell, who lay asleep in the Grand Hotel, as we called one of the longboats, awoke to hear the sea roaring under him like a cataract. I met him at the cabin door as he came running down. It was no longer safe there, he thought, best to save one's rags. He had a bundle under his arm. Then he set off forward to secure his sea-chest, which was floating about on the foredeck, and dragged it hurriedly aft, while one heavy sea after another swept over him. Once the Fram buried her bows and shipped a sea over the forecastle. There was one fellow clinging to the anchor davits over the frothing water. It was poor Yule again. 
We were hard put to it to secure our goods and chattels. We had to throw all our good paraffin casks overboard, and one prime timber bulk after another went the same way, while I stood and watched them sadly as they floated off. The rest of the deck cargo was shifted aft on to the half-deck. I'm afraid the shares in the expedition stood rather low at this moment. Then all at once, when things were about at their worst with us, we sighted a bark looming out of the fog ahead. There it lay with royals and all sails set, as snugly and peacefully as if nothing was the matter, rocking gently on the sea. It made one feel almost savage to look at it. Visions of the flying Dutchman and other devilry flashed through my mind. Terrible disaster in the cook's galley. Mogstad goes in and sees the whole wall sprinkled over with dark red stains, rushes off to Nordahl, and says he believes Ewell has shot himself through despair at the insufferable heat he complains so about. Great revolver disaster on board the Fram! On close inspection, however, the stains appeared to proceed from a box of chocolate that had upset in the cupboard. Owing to the fog, we dared not go too near land, so kept out to sea, till at last towards morning the fog lifted somewhat, and the pilot found his bearings between Farsund and Hammerdoos. We put into Listerfjord, intending to anchor there and get into better sea trim, but as the weather improved, we went on our way. It was not till the afternoon that we steered into Eckersund, owing to thick weather and a stiff breeze, and anchored in Hovland's Bay, where our pilot, Hovland, lived. Next morning the boat davits, etc., were put in good working order. The Fram, however, was too heavily laden to be at all easy in a seaway, but this we could not alter. What we had we must keep, and if we only got everything on deck shipshape and properly lashed, the sea could not do us much harm, however rough it might be, for we knew well enough that ship and rigging would hold out. It was late in the evening of the last day of June when we rounded Kvarven and stood in for Bergen in the gloom of the sullen night. Next morning, when I came on deck, Wagen lay clear and bright in the sun, all the ships being gaily decked out with bunting from topmast to deck. The sun was holding high festival in the sky. Ulriken, Florin, and Lurvstaken sparkled and glittered and greeted me as of old. It is a marvelous place, that old Hanseatic town. In the evening I was to give a lecture, but arrived half an hour too late. For just as I was dressing to go, a number of bills poured in, and if I was to leave the town as a solvent man, I must needs pay them, and so the public perforce had to wait. But the worst of it was that the saloon was full of those everlastingly inquisitive tourists. I could hear a whole company of them besieging my cabin door while I was dressing, declaring they must shake hands with the doctor. One of them actually peeked in through the ventilator at me, my secretary told me afterwards. A nice sight she must have seen, the lovely creature. Report says she drew her head back very quickly. Indeed, at every place where we put in, we were looked on somewhat as wild animals in a menagerie, for they peeped unceremoniously at us in our berths, as if we had been bears and lions in a den, and we could hear them loudly disputing among themselves as to who was who, 
and whether those nearest and dearest to us whose portraits hung on the walls could be called pretty or not. When I had finished my toilette, I opened the door cautiously, made a rush through the gaping company. There he is! There he is! they called out to each other as they tumbled up the steps after me. It was no use. I was on the quay and in the carriage long before they had reached the deck. At eight o'clock there was a great banquet, many fine speeches, good fare, and excellent wine, pretty ladies, music, and dancing till far into the night. Next morning at eleven o'clock, it was Sunday, in bright sunshiny weather, we stood northwards over Bergen Fjord, many friends accompanying us. It was a lovely, never-to-be-forgotten summer day. In Hurla Fjord, right out by the Skerries, they parted from us, amid wavings of hats and pocket-handkerchiefs. We could see the little harbor-boat for a long while with its black cloud of smoke on the sparkling surface of the water. Outside the sea rolled in the hazy sunlight, and within lay the flat mongerland full of memories for me of zoological investigations in fair weather and fowl years and years ago. Here it was that one of Norway's most famous naturalists, a lonely pastor far removed from the outer world, made his great discoveries. Here I myself first groped my way along the narrow path of zoological research. It was a wondrous evening. The lingering flush of vanished day suffused the northern sky, while the moon hung large and round over the mountains behind us. Ahead lay Alden and Kin, like a fairyland rising up from the sea. Tired as I was, I could not seek my birth. I must drink in all this loveliness in deep, refreshing draughts. It was like balm to the soul after the turmoil and friction with crowds of strangers. So we went on our way, mostly in fair weather, occasionally in fog and rain, through sounds and between islands, northwards along the coast of Norway. A glorious land! I wonder if another fairway like this is to be found the whole world over. Those never-to-be-forgotten mornings, when nature wakens to life, wreaths of mist glittering like silver over the mountains, their tops soaring above the mist like islands out of the sea. Then the day, gleaming over the dazzling white snow-peaks, and the evenings and the sunsets with the pale moon overhead, white mountains and islands lay hushed and dreamlike as a youthful longing. Here and there passed homely little havens with houses around them set in smiling green trees. Ah, those snug homes in the lee of the skerries awake a longing for life and warmth in the breast. You may shrug your shoulders as much as you like at the beauties of nature. But it is a fine thing for a people to have a fair land, be it never so poor. Never did this seem clearer to me than now, when I was leaving it. Every now and then a hurrah from land, at one time from a troop of children, at another from grown-up people, but mostly from wandering peasants who gaze long at the strange-looking ship and muse over its enigmatic destination and men and women on board sloops and ten-oared boats stand up in their red shirts that glow in the sunlight and rest on their oars to look at us. Steamboats crowded with people came out from the towns we passed to greet us and bid us Godspeed on our way with music, songs, and cannon salutes. 
the great tourist steamboats dipped flags to us and fired salutes, and the smaller craft did the same. It is embarrassing and oppressive to be the object of homage like this before anything has been accomplished. There is an old saying, At the eve the day shall be praised, the wife when she is burnt, the sword when tried, the woman when married, the ice when passed over, ale when drunk. Most touching was the interest and sympathy with which these poor fisher-folk and peasants greeted us. It often set me wondering. I felt they followed us with fervent eagerness. I remember one day—it was north in Helgeland—an old woman was standing waving and waving to us on a bare crag. Her cottage lay some distance inland. "'I wonder if it can really be us she is waving to,' I said to the pilot, who was standing beside me. "'You may be sure it is,' was the answer. "'But how can she know who we are? "'Oh, they know all about the Fram up here, in every cabin, "'and they will be on the lookout for you as you come back, I can tell you,' he answered. "'Aye, truly, it is a responsible task we are undertaking, "'when the whole nation are with us like this. "'What if the thing should turn out a huge disappointment?' "'In the evening I would sit and look around.' Lonely huts lay scattered here and there on points and islets. Here the Norwegian people wear out their lives in the struggle with the rocks, in the struggle with the sea. And it is this people that is sending us out into the great hazardous unknown. The very folk who stand there in their fishing boats and look wonderingly after the Fram as she slowly and heavily steams along on her northward course. Many of them wave their sou'westers and shout hurrah. Others have barely time to gape at us in wonderment. In on the point are a troop of women waving and shouting, outside a few boats with ladies in light summer dresses and gentlemen at the oars, entertaining them with small talk, as they wave their parasols and pocket-handkerchief. Yes, it is they who are sending us out. It is not a cheering thought." Not one of them probably knows what they are paying their money for. Maybe they have heard it is a glorious enterprise. But why? To what end? Are we not defrauding them? But their eyes are riveted on the ship, and perhaps there dawns before their minds a momentary vision of a new and inconceivable world with aspirations after a something of which they know not." and here on board are men who are leaving wife and children behind them. How sad has been the separation! What longing, what yearning await them in the coming years! And it is not for profit they do it. For honor and glory, then? These may be scant enough. It is the same thirst for achievement, the same craving to get beyond the limits of the known which inspired this people in the saga times, that is stirring in them again today. In spite of all our toil for subsistence, in spite of all our peasant politics, sheer utilitarianism is perhaps not so dominant among us after all. As time was precious, I did not, as originally intended, put in a Trondheim, but stopped at Bayonne, where Sverdrup joined us. Here Professor Brueger also came on board to accompany us as far as Tromsø. Here, too, our doctor received three monstrous chests with the medicine supply, a gift 
from Apothecary Bruin of Trondheim. And so on towards the north, along the lovely coast of Nordland, we stopped at one or two places to take dried fish on board as provision for the dogs, past Torghatten, the Seven Sisters, and Hestemanden, past Lovenen and Tranen, far out yonder in the sea, past Lofoten and all the other lovely places, each bold, gigantic form wilder and more beautiful than the last. It is unique, a fairyland, a land of dreams. We felt afraid to go on too fast, for fear of missing something. On July 12th we arrived at Tromsa, where we were to take in coal and other things, such as reindeer cloaks, komager, a sort of lap moccasin, fin shoes, senna grass, dried reindeer flesh, etc., etc., all of which had been procured by that indefatigable friend of the expedition, Advocate Mac. Tromsa also gave us a cold reception, a northwesterly gale with driving snow and sleet. Mountains, plains, and house roofs were all covered with snow down to the water's edge. It was the very bitterest July day I ever experienced. The people there said they could not remember such a July. Perhaps they were afraid the place would come into disrepute, for in a town where they hold snowshoe races on midsummer day, one may be prepared for anything in the way of weather. In Tromsa the next day a new member of the expedition was engaged, Bernd Benson, a stout fellow to look at. He originally intended accompanying us only as far as Ugor Strait, but as a matter of fact he went the whole voyage with us and proved a great acquisition, being not only a capital seaman, but a cheerful and amusing comrade. After a stay of two days we again set out. On the night of the 16th, east of the North Cape, or Magaro, we met with such a nasty sea, and shipped so much water on deck, that we put into Churlefjord to adjust our cargo better by shifting the coal and making a few other changes. We worked at this the whole of two days, and made everything clear for the voyage to Novaya Zemlya. I had at first thought of taking on board a fresh supply of coal at Vardo, but as we were already deeply laden, and the Urania was to meet us at Ugor Strait with coal, we thought it best to be contented with what we had already got on board, as we might expect bad weather in crossing the White Sea and Barents Sea. At ten o'clock in the evening we weighed anchor and reached Varda next evening, where we met with a magnificent reception. There was a band of music on the pier, the fjord teemed with boats, flags waved on every hand, and salutes were fired. The people had been waiting for us ever since the previous evening, we were told, some of them indeed coming from Vadso, and they had seized the opportunity to get up a subscription to provide a big drum for the town band, the North Pole. And here we were entertained to a sumptuous banquet with speeches and champagne flowing in streams, ere we bade Norway our last farewell. The last thing that had now to be done for the Fram was to have her bottom cleaned of mussels and weeds, so that she might be able to make the best speed possible. This work was done by divers, who were readily placed at our service by the local inspector of the Government Harbor Department but our own bodies also claimed one last civilized feast of purification before entering on a life of savagery. 
The bathhouse of the town is a small timber building. The bathroom itself is low and provided with shelves where you lie down and are parboiled with hot steam, which is constantly kept up by water being thrown on the glowing hot stones of an awful oven worthy of hell itself. While all the time young quan lasses flog you with birch twigs. After that, you are rubbed down, washed, and dried delightfully, everything being well managed, clean, and comfortable. I wonder whether old Father Mohammed has set up a bath like this in his paradise. End of file five.